Hey there, this is James Tripp, welcoming you to another episode of Agents of Everything. In this episode, we're going to be diving into an exploration of hypnotism and the shape of consciousness, or really hypnotism and shaping consciousness, if you like. And I wanted to say up front, regardless of your own personal level of interest in the topic of hypnotism or hypnosis, there is something profound to be learned from this about what it is to be a human having human experiences, or at least the kind of human experiences that you're having, because they're not necessarily the same across the board. So I'm making this episode because I had a question come up inside of an open frame session that I run for a mentoring group, hypnosis mentoring group, where I teach hypnosis. And I teach my particular approach to hypnosis, which I have called since 2009, Hypnosis Without Trance. Now, that title is not entirely unproblematic, Hypnosis Without Trance, but the statement that I'm making or the statement that I was making when I launched my Hypnosis Without Trance blog back in 2009, was that this old school idea that hypnotism works by putting somebody into a special state, which you could call either hypnosis or trance, that somehow renders them open to suggestion and, and realizing suggestions in a way they would not otherwise. Right Now, my experience of exploring with hypnosis up until that time, around that time, it suggested something very different to me, that that just was not how it worked. A lot of the ways that I'd been taught that hypnosis worked, it just didn't seem to be so. It didn't add up. It didn't make sense. So I started to change my approach. And instead of taking people into this special state called trance, I started taking people directly into the experiences that they were curious to explore. So that's basically the take on hypnosis without trance. What that means in practical terms is we can get the hypnotic phenomena happening without doing the trance inductions. Right? That's the short version. So I had somebody new to my approach, new to the group, and for the first time, they had elicited a significant hypnotic experience with somebody, which was in this instance, the person having an experience of their hand stuck to a surface. I'm not sure whether it was a tabletop or their leg or something like that, but you can do this in a variety of different ways. This was a piece that I used to do a lot in street hypnosis or particularly coffee shop hypnosis. Sat at a coffee shop with somebody, I'd get them to place their hand flat on the table and I would take them into or co-create with them an experience of that hand being fully and completely stuck into the tabletop. So as hard as they try, they cannot unstick the hand deeply from the tabletop. Okay. And... I'm not saying that you can control people's minds here. This is not mind control. This is about working with somebody's creative faculty. And when I say creative faculty, I mean the faculty that creates their experience at the moment. Now, the person who was new to the group who had succeeded in getting this to happen was astounded by this. How is it possible that with just words, I was able to get this to happen with this person? I didn't have to put them in the special state. I didn't have to do any of these things I was told I had to do. How is it possible with just words? Now, this is a really good, really useful, really important question because it is possible with words and other dimensions of communication. It's not just words. It quite is possible to take somebody into very, very different 
profound, utterly real experiences with just language and communication. Now, this is hugely significant because we live in a world of language and communication. We swim every day in a sea of language and communication. And we often experience ourselves as somehow being separate from that, as language and communication merely being tools that we use to communicate. Words are just ways of speaking about things. Right? They don't have any deeper significance than that. Well, this is not so. Language, communication, words, ideas, how they all intersect, they do not just assist us in thinking about the world, they literally create the world that we experience. And this is why it's possible to take somebody into very, very different experiences merely through communication, without taking them into some special state, without needing some mythology, which is what I believe classic hypnotism is based upon, an unnecessary mythology that a special state does the work for you, right? And I'm not saying, by the way, that that cannot be a useful mythology sometimes. It can. But I am saying that it's probably, that it is an unnecessary mythology. And once you dispense with it, you can, as a hypnotic practitioner, go much more directly uh, towards the outcomes that you want. So how is it possible? How is it possible? Well, I'll just say this first and foremost. My definition of hypnosis and uh, this is slightly different from the definition I have in the Hypnosis Without Trance book. Okay, the Hypnosis Without Trance book has an older definition I used to use, probably about a decade ago. And since then, I upgraded my definition. Now, you might wonder if you've read my Hypnosis Without Trance book, you might wonder, uh, why did you use the old definition in that? Partly, it's because the book was mostly written a long time ago. Okay. And I could have rewritten it, but a lot of how I'd structured some of the sections was structured around the old definition. But I'm going to give you my updated definition. This is for you if you're interested in hypnosis, but it's also for you if you're interested in human experience, right? How we create our experience from the inside out of our being in each and every moment of our lives. So my definition, it's a utilitarian definition in a sense, is Hypnosis is the use of language and communication to direct attention, lead cognition, and seed ideas for the purpose of leading somebody into an altered experience of reality. Right? That's my definition. Okay? No special state required. Right? We will be shifting state, shifting experience, shifting being, but we're not requiring a special particular type of state in order for it to all work. So let's look at that again, uh, bit by bit. We've got a kind of three-phase definition there. So the first phase is hypnosis is the use of language and communication. Those are our tools. That's our toolkit right there. Language, the words we say, communication, nonverbal communication is hugely important here. Hugely important in quality hypnotic facilitation, right? Now, I want to emphasize again, in everyday life, we are exposed to language, right, as a part of communication. For huge chunks of the day, all day, every day, you could say, especially if you include your own inner dialogue and that kind of thing, thoughts that you might have inside of your head. Right? But if you're reading, if you're listening to others speak, if you're uh, on the internet reading stuff, watching videos, listening to podcasts, whatever, right, 
There's words coming your way and nonverbal communication as well. So this is why I say language and communication. So hypnosis or hypnotism is the intentional use of language and communication in a specific way. Everybody's a hypnotist with a small h, right? To become a hypnotist with a capital H is to change your relationship to language and communication and start to use it more intentionally to shift experience and evoke rather than merely using language and communication to uh, convey information, so to speak, right? That's the way most people think of language and communication. It's about conveying information or explaining things or whatever. As a hypnotist, the way I look at hypnotic communication or, com or communication is from the perspective of evocation, what it evokes within somebody's mind, within their being, within their experience. Okay, for this reason, hypnosis has a lot more in common with poetry than it does with prose. Okay, so that's our first phase, the three-phase definition, the use of language and communication. Second phase is what we're doing with those tools of language communication. And what we're doing is we are directing attention we are leading cognition and we are seeding ideas. Okay. Now, I'm just going to go to the third phase now, and then I'm going to come back to the second phase because we're doing this for a reason. If we're a professional hypnotist or we're an intentional hypnotist, a hypnotist with a capital H, we are doing it for the purpose of leading somebody into an altered experience of reality, right? Literally what is happening for them in this moment is different an altered experience of reality. Okay, that's our aim, that's our intention. But let's go back to phase two, okay, which is directing attention, leading cognition, seeding ideas. Why are these things important? Now, I'm just going to start with this first one, directing attention. I'm just gonna open up my notes here because I want to reference something that I heard Ian McGilchrist say in a podcast interview recently. I made a note of him. Ian McGilchrist, by the way, he's the author of the book, The Master and His Emissary. Uh, and I think the subtitle of it is something like The Divided Mind and the Shaping of Western Civilization or something like that. But the book is called The Master and His Emissary. It's about hemispheric difference, right? If you look at a human brain, it is obviously divided. We have a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere. There's a corpus callosum in between which largely isn't a channel of communication, it's a channel of inhibition, right? So the left and the right do the world differently. They attend to the world differently. And something that Ian McGilchrist said in this interview was how we attend to something changes what we find there, okay? How we attend to something changes what we find there. This really jumped out at me because I have a real interest in attention. And a lot of what I'm doing when I'm working hypnotically with somebody is I am directing their attention. That isn't merely directing their attention towards something. Look at that, look at that, look at that, look at that. That is part of it, right? So if I say to somebody, you may notice the sense of the sensation of your feet in your shoes on the ground, right? If I said something like that to somebody, I'd obviously be drawing their attention to their feet, but I'm also inviting a quality of attention. You may notice the sense and the sensation, right? I'm using a particular pacing 
so as they can connect into the experience in a particular way, right? Um, but also I might direct attention in a particular way through certain ideas, right? So I've said direct attention, lead cognition, and seed ideas. So the ideas that I bring into the mix when I'm communicating with somebody are going to change their attention of something. So let's say I've got somebody holding on to a business card. Now, the reason I say this, this might seem a bit weird and arbitrary if you don't know anything of my hypnosis work, particularly my old street hypnosis stuff. I used to go out, this is, you know, probably 15 years ago or coming up 15 years ago, and I would do this street hypnosis. And at the time, because I was a hypnotherapist, I was a professional hypnotist, it made sense that I could do, if I could do something with my business card, that was useful. People had something memorable they'd had an experience with they could get back to me. So I used to do this thing I'd call a card stick and I would get people to hold my business card out in front of them, focus on a point, and I would co-create with them um, an experience of that card stuck fully between their fingers so they were unable to unstick the card, unable to drop the card, okay? Now, if I've got somebody focusing on that card, I want to create a particular type of experience. So I'm going to direct attention. I'm going to direct it through a certain set of ideas. Okay, so I will look, I will get them to pick a point on the card and I'll say, and just focus on that intently. Focus on that point intently. Now, why do I say this? Focus on that point intently. Because there's an energy in not only the way I'm saying it, but the word intently, right? Has a certain, I'm going to use this term metaphorically, or you can take it literally if you like, has a certain energy to it. Notice how Similar it is to the word intensely, intently, intensely. And sometimes I might even toggle and I might in, you know, deliberately slip into intensely, focus on that intently, just focusing intensely on that point. Now I'm directing attention, but I'm directing it through an idea and through a feel as well. I'm not saying, so just allow your eyes to focus comfortably on that point, on that card. Right? If I focus attention in that way, I'm focusing it through a different quote-unquote energy and a different set of ideas. So I'm going to be shaping experience differently. Okay, So directing attention, leading cognition. I want people to access certain ideas in certain orders. So I'm aware of that. I'm aware of where they're cognition might be going, their cognitive flow might be going. By cognition, by the way, I actually mean something a bit broader than what most people mean. What I mean by that is what I sometimes call mind flow. So it's not just the series of uh, left hemisphere considerations or machinations that a person's mind might be going through. It is the totality of all the activity within their mind. Now, I'm leading that. I'm aware there is a flow of mind that is creating experience in the moment. I want to be aware of that, connecting with that so that I can lead that, right? Seeding ideas I've talked about. The ideas that we think about things through shape our experience of things. This is something that people miss, okay? There's a guy called Owen Barfield. He was a part of a group known as the Inklings. This is how they refer to themselves. There are a group of friends who went to Oxford University. They included C.S. Lewis, the, the novelist who wrote the Narnia books, and J.R.R. Tolkien, obviously, who wrote Lord of the Rings. And Barfield himself also, I think, wrote some fantasy fiction. 
but he didn't quite have the same success as his fellow Inklings. But Barfield, his interest was in something else. He wrote a few books on the same sort of topic, but one of his more famous books was called Saving the Appearances. This became a very influential book. What he became very much interested in was experience and consciousness and how words and ideas change that. Now, this particular thread of exploration started with Barfield when he was quite young. He was in a Latin lesson at school. This was something that was taught in the private education system in the UK very much at the time, probably still is. He was in a Latin lesson and a fellow classmate had mistranslated something or he translated it in a particular way. And he was listening to this translation and he kind of liked it. And then the teacher said, no, that's not quite the right translation. It would be better translated like this and translated it differently. Now, because of the moment of contrast that occurred here between one rendering of it versus another, one translation versus another, Barfield noticed something. And he noticed something that's profound, but that so many people never notice their whole lives. They never get the opportunity to notice this. He noticed that not only did he like one more than the other, but one translation created a very different experience than the other, right? A different experience. Now, the way I talk about this in the work that I do is it's a different organization of reality. Different organizations of reality create different experiences. Okay. So what Barfield got is he got the opportunity by accident to compare and contrast two different organizations of reality. And he would have gone into those and experienced the world through them rather than being stepped back from them, analyzing them in an intellectual way. Or another way of putting this, if we go back to Ian McGilchrist, Ian McGilchrist points out that the right hemisphere is about participation. Right? It's about participatory consciousness. The left hemisphere is about stepping back, subject, object, right? The left hemisphere wants to make things happen. The right hemisphere participates in things. So they have two very different ways of doing the world. They have different attentional paths, right? attentional styles. So um, I think Barfield, now, I use the term participatory consciousness here in reference to McGilchrist, but I believe this is a term that uh, McGilchrist doesn't use, actually. He uses different terms, but he's talking about the same thing. Um, Owen Barfield, he did talk about this idea because he got interested in how, and he started looking at literature and looking at language across time, all the way back to ancient Greece. And his conclusion was that people didn't just have different ideas about the world. They experienced the world very differently through these ideas, okay? It literally changed their consciousness, okay? So there's a, a way of thinking about this. We think our ideas have something to do with belief, our beliefs about the world. But the ideas that we hold and we hold deeply are not about our beliefs about the world. They're about how we experience it. This is a really important thing. It's, about, it's not about belief, it's about experience. Ideas are not about beliefs, they're about experience. This is quite a new thing 
this idea of beliefs, this idea of ideas, that they are about the world. We think about the world. This is actually quite a modern phenomenon, right? Instead of being in the world, we don't have beliefs about the world. We live in the world. So Barfield noted that across time, it's not like ancient people would have lived in the same world but had different beliefs about it. They would have experienced a very different world as a result of their quote-unquote beliefs or the sense they make, the deep sense they make. I've talked about sense-making before. Right? Sense-making isn't just an intellectual activity. It's how we render up the world in our experience. And we're doing it all the time. We don't know we're doing it. As the physicist David Bohm said, our mind makes up the world and then says, I didn't do it. How does our mind make up the world? It makes up the world through the ideas that we look at it through, the sense we make of it, how we render it up in our minds and in our experience. So we don't live in the world as it is. We live in the world 100% as it occurs to us. And the influences on how it occurs to us are not merely the limits of our immediate perceptual apparatus, our eyes, whatever. It's the ideas. It's not just our eyes. It's ideas that we look through and we don't even know we're looking through. So we're influenced all the time. Like right? We're influenced by what we hear on the news, by the stories that get told by the news. They tell us that that's reality. We suddenly find ourselves feeling tense, feeling rotten, because somebody's made up the world in a particular way. I was watching a video the other day. It was talking about the doomsday clock and how the doomsday clock was first set after the Nagasaki and Hiroshima uh, bombings, that it was set at two minutes to midnight, right? Now, the doomsday clock, if you don't know this idea, is the idea that if, if doomsday is midnight, you know, the end of civilization and the end of world as we know it. Uh, you're aware at a particular time in relation to it. How close are we to midnight? So it was originally set at, 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 nine, at uh, two minutes. I heard that it's at the moment, allegedly, the closest it's ever been at 90 seconds, right? And I invite you, as you listen to that, to consider what it would be to believe that, to think that was fact, right? to live in that organization of reality, it might create fear in you. That's hypnosis. That's hypnosis. It's ideas creating experience. We think our ideas are about the world. They shape the world as we experience it. They shape what we see and how we see it. Most people fall for the two fundamental cognitive biases, I call them, which is what I see is all there is and how I see it is how it is. That's not true. What I see is just what I see and how I see it is how I see it. But it's not just how I see it, it's how I experience it. So this is why it's quite possible to create strange experiences with somebody when they're willing to fully connect into a different set of ideas about things and experience the world through them. This is why you can sit down with somebody and you can quote unquote talk them into and experience with their hands stuck to the table because we're not just dealing with words here. We're dealing with sense. We're dealing with ideas. We're dealing with organizations of reality. Words are just handles for deeper, richer concepts that are pre-linguistic and beyond linguistic. 
right? We don't know the nature of concepts, but we do know they make up the world. I would recommend if people are interested in this kind of thing, reading Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, if you want a neuroscientist's take on this, How Emotions Are Made. It's a book that really ought to be called How Experience Is Made. Okay, because that's really what she's talking about. How the concepts that we bring to each moment of our life shape our experience of it. These are outside of consciousness concepts, concepts we see the world through. They are not ideas that we use to think about the world in that more left hemisphere way that we typically relate to beliefs and ideas through left hemisphere kind of framing. So you want to see examples of this every day, right? We feel our ideas, we feel our beliefs, we feel our sense making. You know, imagine somebody bought a lottery ticket. They're watching the television. Lottery numbers are coming in live. And they watch the numbers come up one by one. It's their numbers. Oh my goodness. It builds, it builds, it builds. They absolutely explode. They've won the jackpot. Their whole experience in that moment has shifted. It's changed. Right? And then afterwards, they find out that someone's pranked them using some new AI software to fake that up. And suddenly everything else changes. What were they feeling? What were they experiencing? Facts in the world? No. They're ideas about the world. Their belief about what was going on. What was true in the moment. Now that's the sort of example that a lot of people can get a hang of. I often say to people, you know, when I'm working hypnotically with people or I'm teaching somebody about hypnosis, I'll say, I tell a story. I say, you know, there was a mouse came through the house the other day. And uh, my youngest daughter, she saw it and she was like, oh, look at that, isn't it cute? My wife, on the other hand, was like, oh my God, we're going to have to call the, uh, we're going to have to call the, the, the rodent people, right? And it's like, backing off, squeamish, moving away from it in fear. So my wife has a fearful response. My daughter has an, oh, isn't that cute response? The same mouse, but they experience it in a very different way. Why? Because they have different ideas about the mouse or that they experience the mouse through a different set of ideas. Okay. Now, I was listening to a podcast called The Emerald recently, and there was a fantastic episode on this. I think called, if I'm remembering rightly, Animism is Normative Consciousness. I think that's what it was called. Animism is Normative Consciousness. The Emerald. This is the podcast. I think the guy's called Joshua Shree, who does this podcast. And I think it's a really great podcast. I've listened to a few other episodes and I'm quite into it. Now, the thing that Joshua Shree was pointing out and this thing, animism is a normative consciousness, is that for 99.99999% of human history, we human beings thought about the world in animistic terms, in what would now be called animistic terms. We wouldn't have called it that back then. It would just be the water we swam in. So we wouldn't think about it, wouldn't analyze it. But now it's called animism. What animism is, is basically a worldview that sees everything as alive. Everything is alive. The world has only living things in it. Rocks, okay, furniture, tools, everything. Everything is living. Water, weather, everything is living. And the other thing about animism is it sees the world in terms of relationships between living things. Now, we live in a very different world now. At some point over the last 2,000 years, right, this started maybe about 2,000 years ago, the end of animism, where we start to see the world as mostly inanimate things, non-living things. Certainly a distinction between living and non-living. 
in an animistic world, even dead things are living things because they're all part of the process of life, right? The cycles of life, whatever you want to call them. But in the world that we live in, we live in a different world, right? We live in a world of mostly dead things and even the living things. This is the way uh, modernity has rendered it up for us. Even the living things are a kind of machine, right? They don't have any elan vital. They don't have any life force. Well, it's just like they're, they're bio machinery and a bunch of systems that work to produce life. So it's in a sense, even living things are kind of made less alive in the way we look at things. And of course we go, well, yes, so we're more correct in our worldview. We're more right in our worldview. But what if it's not about correctness? What if it's not about rightness? What if even the idea of being correct, being right, finding the capital T truth is a very modern idea, right? You see, that wasn't the concern, perhaps, of our animistic ancestors. They weren't about finding the capital T truth. They were about living in the world. So relationships become more important. The overall flow becomes more important. Interestingly, Ian McGilchrist points out that the right hemisphere is all about flow, all about connectivity, whereas the left hemisphere likes to break things down into moving parts. Very, very interesting. This is part of his thesis in The Master and His Emissary of how consciousness has shifted. So a lot of people are onto this. A lot of people see this. A lot of people understand this. And this is something that gets missed, I think, with a lot of the renderings of some of the quote-unquote postmodernist philosophers. I know I'm lumping people into a big camp here. And for me, I think there's a lot of richness in postmodernism. But there's some issues around it as well. And I think one of the major issues is, in a sense, there's a recognition that ideas structure things. But there's also a loss of the fact that there's a world beyond those ideas. Okay? There's something alive. There's meaning in things, not just meaning applied to things. Or at least when we live in a world where we see meaning in things, rather than meaning is just applied to things in some arbitrary way, okay? We just start to live in a world of symbols and signs that just relate to each other and don't relate to anything else, any other aspects of a richer system. Something gets lost in that. Maybe what gets lost is soul, for example. Maybe soul gets lost. And when I say soul, if you'd have said to me a few years ago, James, what do you think about souls? Do you think people have souls? I've gone, no, I don't think people have souls. Because I'd been looking at it through a modernistic lens that thinks that it's about the truth. Is it true, scientifically speaking, that people have souls? But there's another way of looking at this. If you say to anybody, you know, that's got no soul or that's soulful, they'll get it, right? They might then try to explain it away and go, well, it's a metaphor. But to say something has soul is about a quality. It's about an experience, a quality, not equality, a quality. And it's about an experience of something. It's how you relate to something. Soul, soulfulness. When it's dried out, when it's dead, when it has no life, no meaning inherent within it anymore, then we could say it's soulless. I just pointing this out, you might go, what's that got to do with hypnotism? What's that got to do with the way we experience the world? It has a lot to do with the way we experience the world. And I'm just giving this as an example because animism isn't a belief system, which I'm using as an example here. It's a form of consciousness. It's a way of being in the world, seeing the world, and experiencing the world. 
We mistake our ideas about the world as being ideas about a world that just stays unchanged, regardless of our ideas, right? We think that's just a different way of understanding it. It's not. It changes our consciousness. The ideas that we think through, the ideas that we experience through shape our consciousness. This is how hypnotism works. We bring a set of ideas that shape consciousness. And it's not just the ideas, it's the whole thing. It's everything that gets evoked, the whole performance, the whole interaction. This is why, for me, hypnotists who pay no attention to aesthetics, the aesthetics of their work, are missing a huge amount of what it's about. Because aesthetics are about influencing experience. Okay, so we want to bring all of this in the mix. All right, so I'm going to wrap up now because my dog's barking away in the background and I'm going to take that as a sign that it's time to sign off. Um, if you appreciate what's being shared in these podcasts, then please do review this or rate this. If you're listening on Spotify, I'd love for you to rate it. If you haven't signed up for Agents of Everything on Substack, please do sign up for Agents of Everything. If you're on the Substack, you can engage with me. You can use the comments section there. You can get into the dialogue, into the discourse, ask the questions you want to ask. And actually, if there's anything that you want to create, any difference you want to make, right? Bring that in. Ask me. Agents of Everything is about utility. I'm a self-development guy. This is my history. Right? I've done coaching for years. People, when they want coaching, they're looking to realize outcomes. Now, it happens to be that the phase of life that I'm in right now, I don't know if it's because I've got older or whatever, I continue to explore. Yes, I still have an interest in realizing outcomes. I still have an interest in what we create in the world. But I'm interested in our seeing and being and where we create from, how we see things, how we experience things. We cannot separate that from what we create because it all shapes our participation in the world. We cannot just be apart from it, manipulating it. We are embedded in it. We are influenced as much as we influence. This is why questions of agency that I've been talking about recently, they're very, very interesting questions. Some people might say, well, it's too philosophic. I just want to get down to the, the nitty gritty, the nuts and bolts. I'm very happy to do nitty gritty and nuts and bolts as well. I'm happy to approach this in a variety of different ways. But uh, if you're liking what you're hearing and you want to engage in the conversation, you want to be part of co-creating this, I'd invite you to subscribe on Substack if you haven't already and share this amongst your friends if you feel they would benefit too. Okay, I'm going to sign off here, but I look forward to when we next connect.